and turn to Luke chapter 1. We continue our uh, Christmas series, Horn of Salvation, through uh, the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke. And uh, today we're going to be looking at Zechariah's prophecy, which begins in verse 67 uh, through verse 80. Uh, I'm going to read for, as we begin our time together, uh, just verses 68 and 69. I think it's appropriate every year that we reflect on the events of the Incarnation. Uh, and when we talk about incarnation, that's a big word to say the infleshing of God. Uh, that there was a moment in time in history uh, that God took upon flesh. That is an amazing thought. That, that is mind-blowing. That's hard to understand. That's mysterious. And, and I think it's appropriate every year that, that we are forced to stretch our minds, to stretch our hearts in that way. Because what God has done here in sending His Son is mind-blowing. It, it is amazing. It's something only He could do. And we are, we are forced to come to grips with His grace, His mercy, His glory, um, and even the mystery uh, of this amazing act for us. If you would stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect Word as we prepare our hearts to hear from our King. Jesus is a King. Right now He is seated at the right hand of God. He is ruling. He is reigning. And His kingdom is rising throughout the earth through churches. And He speaks to His churches through His Word. He speaks to His kingdom here gathered in Richmond, Kentucky through His Word in these moments. And he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of the servant David. Oh God, I pray that Your Word today would transform us. God, we, we come in here and our minds and our hearts are racing. God, we... We don't know where to go. We don't know what to do so often. We're trying to make sense out of our lives on our own. And your word thunders in. This amazing reality that, that Jesus took on flesh and lived and died for us. It thunders in our lives and it, it realigns everything. It shapes everything so that we would know who we are. We would know who you are and we would know what you require of us. But God, we need your Spirit. God, we need the power of your Spirit to change us, to make us more like Christ, to give us a love and a delight for Him and His Word. And God, we pray that you would do so in these moments by your grace, your, for your glory, according to your Word by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I absolutely love Christmas decorations. Now, some of you, when you hear Christmas decorations, there's a vision of Christmas decorations that comes to your mind, and it's nice and it's neat, you know, the white lights and the, the wreaths around the door that look all pristine. That's, to me, those are not Christmas decorations. If you could have them up any time of the year, 
and, and it looked perfectly normal, uh, then it's not a Christmas decoration. For me, Christmas decorations are gaudy. They are very colorful. The more redneck they can be, uh, the better. And so I love this time of the year. And I, I love driving through neighborhoods and seeing the most gaudy colored lights, plastic reindeers, stars, blow up minions on people's houses. I love all of that. But I remember vividly... Uh, one evening when I was confronted with how weird and awkward uh, you can be down south around Christmas when it comes to Christmas decorations. I was a youth pastor in Birmingham, Alabama, and I was with a group of uh, students at a high school state championship, and we were leaving the game, and, and my car was full of these students, and we, we, we were moving through Birmingham, and all of a sudden the car just erupted in laughter, and, and, and the students were just howling at something they had seen in someone's yard, and they said, you've got to go back. You've got you've to drive by this house and see uh, what these people did in their yard. And we went back through the neighborhood and we went around the house and, and there we stopped in front of this house and there was this nativity scene, which was perfectly normal. You had the, the stable that was built out of wood there. And, and then as, as I appreciate so much, you had the big gaudy plastic Mary and Joseph there and, and the, 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 the lights that come up on the inside and where you can see them in the dark. And it, I was like, what, what, is, what is so awkward? What is so weird about that? And one of the students said, look on top of the manger. Look on top of the manger. And these people had nailed Santa Claus and Rudolph and a sleigh on top of the nativity scene. And I turned to them and said, what's wrong with that? I've seen that my whole life. What is so funny? And they began to talk about, did Santa really come visit Jesus? And, and, and then the, the jokes in the car. And, and to me, I was somewhat offended. It was somewhat of an insult because it reminded me of a yard one of my families would have around Christmas. <laughs> My great-grandmother's yard looked like that most of the time around Christmas. But, but was forced with the reality that at Christmas we can hodgepodge a lot of things together and we don't even know why. Think about the imagery we see this time of the year. There, there are uh, wreaths, there are trees, there are candles, there's mistletoe, there's stars, there's lights, there's angels, there's snowmen, there's Grinches, there's Joseph, Mary, Jesus, Santa Claus, and it's all this imagery that's just swirling around all the time. And if we were asked by someone new to our culture, how, what does all of this mean? Is this, what are, what is all of, how does all of this go together? We would spend a week discipling them in all of the Christmas stories. Well, this Christmas story, it doesn't have anything to do with this, but this is why we do this. And it, it would take forever to unpack all of the imagery that we see around Christmas this time of the year. When you start reading the Gospel of Luke, you feel the same way. Luke, in telling the Christmas story in just two chapters, he packs in all kinds of imagery. 
He packs in all kinds of stories, all kinds of biblical narratives and characters. He just packs them in. And and so often you you read this gospel and it just seems hodgepodge. It seems seems like it's just crammed in there. And and one of the, the, the most confusing things that a lot of people have around the Christmas story is how does John the Baptist fit into this? I mean, I thought this was the Christmas narrative. And we're spending a lot of time here talking about John the Baptist, Jesus' bug-eating cousin down by the river. That's who we're talking about, his, 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 his conception. Where does he come from and how does he fit into this story? And in our section today, we find John's father singing about his mission. He tells us how John fits into this story. He tells us how all of this imagery makes much of Jesus. And it's almost as if John the Baptist brings it all together in his message. Zechariah was John's father. He was serving in the temple when the angel Gabriel came from the very presence of God and announced to him, Zechariah, the thing that you have been praying for. Elizabeth, your wife, she's getting older, she's barren, and you realize that that you have no children, and and you're wondering if that's ever going to happen for you, and you've been praying your whole life for a child. She is going to conceive the prophet. You've heard the story of the prophets. Your wife, Elizabeth, who is barren, is going to conceive the prophet. And Zechariah doesn't believe Gabriel. He doubts this message from God. And so he is struck with silence for nine months. Okay, if you're going to speak and doubt, how in the world can this happen when God is saying it's going to happen? God doesn't allow him to talk for nine months. And then there's the ceremony where John is to be named. And everyone's standing around thinking, well, we're going to name him Zechariah. This is the firstborn son. And Zechariah's in the background, not able to talk, probably throwing a fit. No, 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 you can't. Not saying it, but in his mind. And he gets paper and pen and he writes, his name is John. Because that's what God said his name would be. Because he's going to be full of grace. He's going to be full of a word of grace. And all of the sudden, he is able to speak. All of the sudden, that that sign of judgment is lifted from his mouth. And I want you to think for a moment, if you were not able to talk for nine months, what would be the first thing you would say? Imagine nine months of silence. Imagine if your mouth was closed and you couldn't speak for nine months. You would probably look around more intently. You would probably become more aware of your surroundings. You would probably be forced to listen to other people more. You you would probably touch things more. You, you, You would probably read more. You would probably learn more. And we find out exactly what Zechariah has been learning for nine months when the first thing out of his mouth is the promises of God. 
For nine months, he has been reflecting upon this promise that he had been given, that his son would be the prophet. And for nine months, he hasn't been able to talk about it. For nine months, his mouth has been closed as he sees, as he sees the development in the womb before his eyes. And as he realizes the promise is coming true, the angel was right. The the word to me from God is right. It is true. And then he's able to speak. And notice what happens. Verse 67. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he prophesied, saying... Now, the word prophesied here, it means to tell beforehand or it simply means to tell what is true. You have prophets who declare what is going to happen ahead of time. You also have prophets that turn around in certain cultures and just say, this is what's going on. This is what God has said about you. This is what God has said about his plans. And here, the plans of God are unfolding before Zechariah. And we almost see this hodgepodge of prophecy where it all comes together and he tries to sing about it all at once. He tries to get it all in, but he is filled with the Holy Spirit. And after going through the book of Acts, we remember what that means. God fills people with the Holy Spirit to say the Spirit is the presence of the kingdom. And when the Spirit comes upon you, you are filled with power to announce the kingdom is here. And so what is the first thing he does when he opens his mouth? He declares the kingdom is here. He tells forth the kingdom is here. God is coming with his kingdom by the power of his spirit. And in this picture of Zechariah here, we we get a vision of what worship should be like. Here, Here, Zechariah is full of prophetic praise. He is telling us what is true, prophecy through praise, song, celebration, delight, And we see a picture here of what our worship should be like. It is to be spirit-filled. It is to be full of the Word. In worship, we don't speak our thoughts. We harness our thoughts with the thoughts of God. In worship, we have to listen to the Word of God, the promises of God. And then when we sing, we sing the promises of God. And so all worship should be Word-centered. It should be the word being sung and spoken and declared in this prophetic praise. It's also why you need corporate worship week after week after week. You have to have that interruption because we gather here week after... I'm going to kick this pen off before it trips me. Week after week, we gather here. You think it's funny I can trip over a pen? I almost did a few times. Week after week, we gather and our thoughts fill our minds and our hearts. Because we've spent all week thinking about our schedules. What do I need to do? We've spent week after week thinking about our problems. How can I fix this? How can can I take care of this? We've spent all week telling ourselves what is true. My life is good. My life is horrible, bad. We've spent all week 
I'm not loved. I'm lonely. I, 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 this is, we've spent all week telling ourselves things, and what we have to do is gather and declare what is true. And we gather with other people in prophetic praise, declaring what is true in song. We've already done that this morning. We, we outsing our thoughts about the word in world in corporate worship. We think certain things about our life and we consume our life with the words in our head and we gather and we say, no, this is what is true. Jesus is Lord. The gospel is true. He is ruling. He is reigning. All of this is headed somewhere and we declare it in celebration together. In worship, there is a sense in which we are saying to one another, shut it. Close your mouth. Stop talking and listen. Listen to us together. Because sometimes we have to sing for the person next to us who doesn't want to sing the truth of the Word of God. But this is why you need worship. To remind yourself what is true. To, to together outsing your doubts with the truth of God's Word. And that is exactly what Zechariah does here when he begins in verse 68. And he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. The word blessed when it's used of God, refers to His fullness. He is saying He is full. He is high and lifted up and exalted in completeness. He is full and deserving of praise. And He has visited and redeemed His people. Now notice something about those words, visited and redeemed. It's past tense. He, he sees in the present events God is doing something that is good as done. God promised the kingdom would come. It's here. It's as good as done. God has visited and redeemed His people. And the word picture here is of the Exodus. And it reminds us that redemption, which is our salvation, is not distant. Notice the word visit. Visit. It's a personal visit. And so God doesn't redeem us in this abstract, impersonal, distant transaction. There's not some bank account in heaven where God says, okay, you believe, you move from indebted category to now you are credited in this way. No, He comes. It's not just abstract thing up there. He comes personally and visits us to rescue us. And he comes in flesh and blood. And so as Zechariah hears these stories of children being born, conceived in the womb, he, 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 he says God has already done something for us. Notice verse 69, the way he describes this in his mind. Remember the imagery that is just swirling about in, in his mind. He's trying to grab hold of it. And he's heard of this imagery before, raised up a horn of salvation for us. In the house of David. Now, we hear horn. We may think, you know, musical instrument, trumpet, or, or whatever they would play in the Old Testament. But even the musical instruments were animal horns carved to declare victory and power and often used when folks would go to war. And so what he's referring to here is an animal horn. When he says he's raised up a horn of salvation, in his mind, Christmas imagery here, a massive ox horn lifted up 
bloodied, gory, bullhorn, massive. These creatures, these massive creatures. And now there's this horn that has pierced its enemies. In Psalm 92, uh, the psalmist declares, You have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. In Micah, we, we hear this declaration, Arise, iron hoots of brawn, and beat into pieces my enemies. Arise, this horn of iron. And it's this picture of this animal horn that is lifted up. And so when, when you think Christmas imagery, horn of salvation, gospel of Luke, what is to come to your mind, imagine out in the field a coyote that is coming up around the barn or whatever you farmers have. And, and imagine a bull chasing that coyote. And imagine that bull with its head pinning that coyote to the ground. Merry Christmas. And piercing it through with its horn. And then raising its horns up. And that coyote just dangling off the top of its head. That is what Zechariah is talking about. And he is saying, over the house of David, God has lifted a bloody ox horn. He has come back from victory with the enemies of God dangling to the side over that horn. He is parading around this victory, this horn of salvation. And notice how Zechariah connects it all. As he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from old, there were prophets that declared this kingdom of victory would come, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us. God is going to vanquish all who oppose him, and because they oppose him, they oppose us. And God was going to spear them through with this horn of salvation to show the mercy promised to our Father and remember his holy covenant. God made a promise to us, and the oath he swore to, the, to our father Abraham to grant us. In Genesis chapter 17, God says to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation and a great people. And one of the ways he proves it to Abraham is he says, okay, let's make a covenant. And God takes all of these animals and he says, I want you, Abraham, to split them in two before us. And, and, and Abraham thinks this is going to be a normal covenant. What's going to happen is we're going to walk through these animals. And if we don't uphold our end of the bargain if Abraham doesn't have faith and obey God then he's going to be like the animals split in half and what happens before the covenant is made is Abraham falls asleep and while Abraham is out cold God walks through the animals and what God said to Abraham is if I don't do what I promised you my name shall be dead like these animals. And here in the womb of Mary, and here in the womb of Elizabeth, the kingdom that God promised to bring even to Abraham that he staked his life on, his name upon. If God doesn't do these things, he's a liar. He's like a dead animal split in two. God has fulfilled all of these things by bringing into the womb of Mary this Savior, this Deliverer who would defeat the enemies of God. Now, if you overheard Zechariah at church on Sunday... 
You heard him prophesying in this way. You would say, what are you talking about? We are still oppressed by the Romans. What are you talking about? The promises to Abraham that there would be a seed that would come that would bless the nations. The nations are these outcast pagans. What are you singing about, Zechariah? How have these things happened in past tense? How is there a horn of salvation raised up? We are oppressed by our enemies. That God hasn't fulfilled his promises, you old man. Would you shut up? We know you're excited about the birth of your child and all of that, but this is getting out of hand. How has God fulfilled his promises? And he would say, let's go over to cousin Mary's house because there's a baby in her womb that is our bloody ox horn and he will be lifted up in victory. The reason Zechariah can sing in past tense is because he knows the Savior has come in flesh and blood. Jesus is the promise fulfilled. Jesus is the one, verse 74, who will deliver us from our enemies that we might serve him without fear forever in holiness and righteousness. He is the one who's fulfilling all of these promises. In Jesus, the kingdom is at hand. In Jesus, the promise is fulfilled. In Jesus, we have been visited, redeemed, and saved. It is as good as done. I can sing in past tense because the Savior is here. The kingdom is at hand in him. In Him we are being gathered together forever. In Him there is a bloody horn of salvation that will be lifted up in victory. And here's the glory of Zechariah's song. He's singing as if it's already happened. You've seen how it has happened. (laughs) You look back at a bloody horn lifted up in victory on the place of the skull Golgotha. And you today, even though Zechariah had no clue what this would look like, you today can stand with him and sing that you have had a horn of salvation lifted up over your worst enemies. You know, we like to say, I am my own worst enemy. And that's true. We, to some extent, we can look back over our life and we can think about decisions we've made, ways we've felt about things, Choices that that we've gotten involved with that we go, that wasn't the best thing for me. I I am my own worst enemy. The desires of my heart, the selfishness, even the way that I respond to the selfishness of others. But it's worse than that. It's worse than that. You are your own worst enemy because you've made God your enemy with your sin. You've rebelled against God. You've tried to fight against him as your creator. That's why you're your own worst enemy. is because you've made God your enemy. And it is your sin that has separated you from God forever. But you know what you can sing today? Is on the cross, my worst enemy was crucified in Jesus. You can look to the cross today as a horn of salvation where sin and death was pierced through and gored to death and lifted up in victory. You can say today, I, I, my own worst enemy, 
My sin has been put to death in Jesus. And you can sing there is a horn of victory, a horn of deliverance, a horn of salvation that's been lifted up for you. And because of our sin, we deserve death. We, we deserve to be separated from God forever and ever. That, that's what we've done to ourselves in rebelling against God. And on the cross, Jesus was forsaken for you. He, he took your rebellion upon himself and he was banished for you. And, and that is the very reason we can gather together in a culture, in a world where there are waiting rooms and funeral homes and there are diagnoses of cancer. And we stand around and we sing today. We sing. This last week, some of you have heard about friends who have died. The next week, you may get the diagnosis. And yet, here today, we sing with Zechariah that because of the cross, Jesus lifted up as a horn of salvation, I don't have to fear death. I don't have to fear what is coming to me, what I can't control, what I can't fight back, what I can't remove from my own life, my sin and the consequence, which is death. But Jesus did that for me. And Jesus, three days later, stands up and walks out of a concrete tomb outside of the city of Jerusalem with sin and death lifted up, dead and gored to death for you. And that's how you can sing today. Notice as the text continues, and you, child. So there has been one he's singing about, Jesus, who takes preeminence even over his child. Now he speaks to John. He says, you will be called, notice, the prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare his way. Now, again, he says, you're going to be the prophet of the Most High. All kings have a prophet that say, this is God's king. Saul had prophets. David had prophets. They all had prophets that say, this is the one the Lord has anointed. And here's Zechariah over his baby boy. You're going to be the prophet. Now, this is not just some father who is gushing with his firstborn. He, this is the word of God to him. But imagine how awkward and weird it would be. You go to visit that family that just had a baby, and you find the father whispering to himself over to the side, you're going to be special. You're going to be the prophet of the Lord. You're going to be the one, he says here, who prepares the way. And he describes what he's going to do. The king is coming. God's most high king is coming. And what you're going to do is you're going to push all the people out of the way. You, you're, going to, you're going to take all the thorns and thistles off the road so the king can come in. You're going to be the one who walks before the king and says, the king is coming. There he is. There's the king. Get out of his way. Here he comes. That's who you're going to be, you sweet little thing. That would be weird. That would be awkward. And yet it is the truth of the, God, of the Word of God that He is declaring here. Notice the purpose to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins. The word for knowledge here means to experience salvation. 
And how are they going to experience salvation? The forgiveness of their sins. You want to know the joy of knowing Jesus? Consider the fact that all of your sins have been forgiven. The guilt that you earned for your sin has been alleviated. You no longer have to pay that penalty. It's been released. And he says that's what they're going to experience because of the tender mercy of God. This is a beautiful word that describes the, the immediate personal kindness of God. You're going you're to tell God's people that they can know God's immediate personal kindness. And here's what it's going to be like. Whereby the sun shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. Your message is going to be like sun in darkness. John, your message to a dark world, it's going to be like sunrise after a cold, lonely night. The turmoil will be gone. There will be no reason to fear. There will be only peace. In verse 80, the child grew and became strong in the spirit. And, and we would think, you know, Zechariah and Elizabeth made him this little special kid, the prophet of the Lord. They're going to set him up well in the city. They're going to, he's going to have a building, neon lights outside, prophet of the Lord. Come hear the Lord's message. No, he goes out to the wilderness, which makes no sense. He goes out to the wilderness even though his message is to be the public arrival of the king. But he goes out until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And what he does out in the wilderness is he is identifying with Israel. Remember in Exodus where God delivers his people and takes them through the wilderness to the promised land. And what is the point of the wilderness? Trust me. Believe my promise. Trust me, we're headed somewhere good. I will feed you. I will take care of you. And it's symbolic here, John going out to the wilderness. He's calling Israel out to the wilderness. Come on out to the wilderness and trust the Lord. Come on out to the wilderness and believe the promises of God. And it's what Jesus did. Jesus goes out to the wilderness to trust the Lord for us, to believe the promises of God for us. But John's prophetic ministry here is to tear back the thorns and thistles so the light of the kingdom can shine in. And he calls everybody away from their kingdom, from the cities we build for ourselves, to come out to the wilderness and trust the Lord. And when you find the Lord, it's like waking up after a cold, dark night, alone and lost. What a beautiful picture of conversion. You see, many of us are here today and we, we are lost in our own thoughts. That, that is a graphic way to explain what it means to be apart from Jesus. Lost. Lost. You are alone and you have to make sense out of the world according to your mind. And the way you make sense out of the world around you is how you feel about things. Your own wisdom. And, and, and the tendency we have in our hearts and our minds as we make sense out of the world is to push our Creator away, which is the stupidest thing you could ever do. Because He made you and He made the world. 
And it is the biggest insult that you could ever do is to say, I'm going to make sense out of everything apart from my Creator. And here John's message is, no, your Creator is coming to you with a blazing spotlight to find you. He's coming to find you. He is searching through the thorns and thistles of your own mind. How you have lost yourself. How you have tangled yourself in the darkness and weeds of sin and despair. The reason you are lonely. The reason you are cold. The reason you are despairing is because you are running from the light. You are separating yourself from the light. And what John is going to do, he says, no, the light is here. Jesus is here. You were created for Him. You were created by Him. You were created through Him. You were created for His glory. And until you get that, you can't make sense out of anything. And this blazing light of truth and enlightenment is coming and searching you down like a spotlight. Come on out to the wilderness and trust Him. Come on out to the wilderness and find the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see, the reason... Many of us here today are lonely is because that's exactly what we're doing. We're running from the light. We're running from the truth of the gospel. Many of us here today, we are lost. We feel alone. We have thousands of Facebook friends and followers, but we've never felt more alone. And what we try to do is we try to fill that loneliness with with clubs and teams and organizations and even church. Some of you are here today just because you're lonely. And I'm glad you're here. Because the spotlight of God's light is chasing you down. And the reason you're lost and you're lonely is because you can't find your way without the light. And yet John is declaring there is a light that's coming that is offering you everything you possibly could want. Notice he says forgiveness. His people will understand forgiveness. You know what you need more than anything this Christmas? Is forgiveness. And you need fellowship with someone who's going to forgive you no matter what. You need fellowship with someone who's always going to forgive you. And the only place you can find that is in the light. God is the only one who's going to forgive you no matter what. The, the fellowship that you experience with others, it's, all, it's just a candle. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it warms you. Sometimes you can see. But it's just a candle. It goes out every now and then. And the relationships you have with others, they never fill what God can offer you. Forgiveness, no matter what. He died on the cross for your sins. He has to forgive you. He knew you would be high maintenance. Notice tender mercy. He comes to you in the person of Jesus Christ and offers you tender mercy. You long for someone who's going to come and stay and never leave. God has to stay because of the horn of salvation lifted up for you. God sent his son to die for you when you were a sinner. He's not all of a sudden you believe the gospel and you're in a relationship with, with Jesus Christ and you're studying the word of God and all of a sudden you sin. God doesn't go, whoa, I didn't know you were going to do that. Oh, my word. I didn't know you were still going to be a sinner. No, he knows. 
Because he died for your sin. He knows how hideous it is. And yet, he's tender in mercy. He ain't going anywhere. Notice he offers you peace. Your greatest relationship struggle begins with your relationship with God. He is king, but you want to be king. And so the most essential relationship you have in the world is marked by war with your creator. And instead of wiping you out, he comes and dies for you, his enemy, just to say to you, forever we can have peace. And so many of us are alone and we are cold and we don't know where we're going and we don't know what to do. And here John says there is a blazing light of glory that explains your life. There is a blazing light of glory and fellowship where you can know God forever. And yet I know here today that scares some of you to death. You're scared of the light. You're running from the gospel. It scares you to death to have to be so intimately known by someone. To admit, I'm a sinner and God knows all of my sins. He is holy. He is righteous. And so you push that light away week after week after week. It's almost like you come to church and you're like, I'll look for a second and then I'm going to turn away. And yet the light comes to consume your life and you keep pushing it away. You are like Adam hiding in the bushes from God. He doesn't want to be seen by his creator. And maybe so you really understand Christmas. There's another Christmas image you should have. Maybe, maybe on the top of your tree instead of an angel or a star, which would be perfectly great. Especially if you had all kinds of colored lights around it. Maybe on the top of our trees we should have an ox horn dripping with blood. Merry Christmas, right? Some of you are crazy enough to do that. But it would help communicate what the light has come to do for us. Because, you know, five pound baby Jesus isn't very threatening. But the light of the world that comes to expose all of your sin is terrifying. But behind that light is an ox horn of tender mercy that has been raised up having gored your enemies to death. And that's a Christmas image that we could hang over our mantle. Let's pray.